Good evening, good evening, everyone. Welcome to a wonderful night of learning Tanya. And boy, oh boy, here we are. We have arrived at a brand new section of Tanya. And uh, we are at probably one of the most beloved parts of Tanya, this, uh, this stretch of chapters, beginning from chapter 26 through chapter... 34. So nine chapters here. The theme of these chapters is joy, to live joyfully, to overcome and to resolve any form of sadness. Now, <laughs> if you think about it, what interest does religion have to take care of your negative emotions? <laughs> How is that religion's problem? No, if the Alter Rebbe is here to give us a religious text, a Jewish text, is, is, is happiness a concern of Judaism? Does Judaism care how you feel? Does Judaism care if you're in a good mood or a bad mood? I'm saying that's more like a personal thing. And in fact, if you would ask somebody, why do you want to be happy? Why be happy? What's the problem with not being happy? Who said you need to be happy? Don't be happy. Right, today we take it for granted. Everybody has to be happy. You're not happy? You got to go see a therapist. Well, who said? <laughs> who said you got to be happy? Like, whoever made this virtue that you got to be happy or else? I think most people would respond, why do I want to be happy? Because I want to be happy. I want to feel good. You feel good when you're happy. You don't feel good when you're not happy. No one wants to feel not good. Nobody likes feeling miserable. So we tend to think of being happy as something of personal interest, exclusively. I like being happy, therefore I want to be happy, therefore whatever can make me happy will make me happy. And that's what I'll go for. The Alter Rebbe puts happiness front and center of Tanya, saying this is the heart of Tanya. It even covers the very middle chapters. You know, the literal midpoint, the center of the whole Tanya is about joy. The altar puts a lot of emphasis on Tanya. Which is very, very interesting. The altar is going to teach us just how important it is to be happy. It's a necessity to be happy. A Jew must be happy. And the altar Rebbe makes it uh, his mission to teach us the art of living joyfully. And practically speaking, how to overcome moments when uh, being happy is not so easy. And when there are negative emotions that are pulling us down. But also, I think it's quite revolutionary. I think the stereotype still does hold. I think there's a stereotype that the more religious one becomes, the more serious they become. The less lighthearted they become, right? Uh, the less heavy... Um, could I even use the word? Huh, I don't want to use it. Um, but, you know, it's like, it's weighty, right? Religious life and, 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 and uh, 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 the more religious you become, the more fear you have and, and the more seriousness and you're worried about sin and you're worried about the, 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 the fear of heaven and even the fear of hell. And it's like a stereotype, you know? There's less frivol frivolousness. There's less lightheartedness in religious life. <clears throat> and it's quite revolutionary that the altar ever makes joy so vital, so important to the mission of a Jew, to the success of a Jew. And it's really one of the cornerstones of the Hasidic way of life. It's one of the great novelties and revolutions of the Baal Shem Tov. When the Baal Shem Tov began the Hasidic uh, Renaissance, the revolution of Hasidus, you know, some 300 years ago, that the Baal Shem Tov preached the need for Jews to be joyous. And, you know, in the years, in the hundreds of years over the Jewish exile and through the oppression and through the suffering of the Jewish people, physical suffering, spiritual suffering, slowly the joy of Jewish life was slowly fading away. And there was a sense of distance from God. And uh, there was an idea, you know, 
Jewish life was just difficult, and there was that seriousness and heaviness and weightiness. Jews didn't sing when they prayed, for example. Today, there's a thing, right? Jews, Jews pray. The idea of singing in prayer was part of the revolution of the Baal Shem Tov. Which means 2,000 years ago, in the Holy Temple, we would sing in the Temple. But solely Jews lost their song. They forgot how to sing. They forgot the joy of Jewish life. And the Baal Shem Tov brought that back. And that became a, a trademark of the Hasidic teachings, the Hasidic way of life. A Jew must be happy. In the earlier years of the Chabad movement, somebody asked the grandson of Rabbi Schneir Zalman, the author of the Tanya, which we call the Alter Rebbe, right? His grandson was his eventual successor. His name was Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Lubavitch, the great-great-grandfather of the more well-known uh, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson of Lubavitch. And they asked him, what does the teachings of Chabad accomplish? You know, if somebody studies these teachings, what is it going to do to them? You know, today maybe we have a little bit more of an idea because we're 200 years later. <laughs> so there's been uh, more time to experiment and more time to see the results of the experiments. You know, but in those early years, they want to, you know, for Jew studies Tanya, so, so, so what changes happens in him? So this Rebbe, Rebbe Menachem Mendel, his name was, it was known as the Tzemach Tzedek. His magnum opus was called the Tzemach Tzedek. So he's known as the Tzemach Tzedek. He responded, learning Hasidus makes a person wiser, makes him to be more dedicated to God and to Torah, and makes him to be a happier person. And the joy that he has makes those around him also become more joyful. That's a, that's a beautiful, simple description. It makes you happy, and it makes those around you happy, which means you're able to, you exude, you exude it. It shines off from you, and uh, other people catch it. It becomes contagious. It's a good virus, right? It's not a bad virus to catch. So, dear friends, the author of it here introduces us to the world of joy. And we're 25 chapters into Tanya. So in order to understand how we segue into joy, into today's Tanya, let's just recap very, very briefly. In Tanya, the Alter Rebbe taught us that every single Jew possesses two souls. Two souls. Which means there's not one you, there are two yous. There's something called an animal soul, which is just the basic human soul. Very, very self, uh, uh, self-oriented. Very self-serving, even selfish. It is simply uh, the survival instinct, the base, natural instinct of the human. But then we also have a godly soul, divine soul, which enables us to be holy, enables us to see, to be there, to, to live for something greater than us. And it's really our source of connection to God, and it's our, it's our source of strength. The altar of it taught us that these two souls are in a perpetual battle. We live on a battlefield. We are the battlefield. Because there's two souls and there's only one body. And every single one of these souls has a life it wants to live, but it can't live life without a body. So <laughs> it's one for two. So they're constantly fighting over the battle, over the body, and we feel that fight. Every single time we feel torn, we are sensing this tension between two souls that have very different lives that they want to live. And uh, so what happens? The altar says we have the ability to choose which soul is going to live life right now. In general, the animal soul is weak. It doesn't make good decisions. It's simply interested in, in, uh, in itself. It's interested in pleasure. It's interested in survival. <laughs> it's not a visionary. It doesn't see long term. It doesn't make mature, good, holy decisions. So the goal of life is to always have the godly soul in the driver's seat of life, of life, in the cockpit. Who is steering this ship? Who is dictating life? It should be the godly soul. That's called holy living, and that's called healthy living. You don't live a life based on weakness. You live a life based on strength. 
and every moment of life, every moment of life, we are facing choices, and those choices are a battlefield. There are two forces within us. One wants to make cheap, selfish, short-sighted decisions. Another one wants to make visionary, altruistic, holy decisions. It's a battlefield of life. In the past 25 chapters of Tanya, the Alter Rebbe taught us about this battle and taught us the techniques how to win this battle. And if I have to summarize the past 25 chapters, it is the Alter Rebbe teaching you that you could be in a position of strength every single day of your life and every moment of life. Weakness does not have to be an option. We could always be strong. It's within our power. And the altar taught us techniques, more than one technique. How we could always be a successful Jew, to not be overtaken by weakness, and to always be living in divine soul mode, in godly soul mode. Comes chapter 26. And you know, in every single, whenever you hear something which seems too good to be true, what do you always say? So what's the catch? <laughs> right? So what's the catch? Where's the but? There's a big but. The Tanya until now is telling you, you could succeed, you will succeed if you only put your mind to it. You have the strength to do this. And because you're able to do it, therefore, <laughs> why not? You should be doing it. But there's a big but. There's a certain precondition. The ultimate tells you everything I told you should work, but it's not going to work without one little ingredient. That ingredient is, you probably, could probably guess it by now, is joy. Tanya works if you're a happy person. If you're not happy, the book is not going to work. <laughs> it's not going to work. Like imagine, imagine you go to, uh, you're going to buy your first car. And uh, you've got a good budget. And you go buy a fancy sports car. And when you're there, the, uh, the seller, not the seller, the, well, what's it called again? The, uh, the floor man, right? The, the salesperson, the guy on the floor, he's selling you this product. Every single bell and whistle that's there, he sells you. And you take it for a joy ride. It's wonderful. And look at this, you got an amazing car. You come back half a day later, you say, I've got a little problem. My car stopped working. You sold me a lemon. It's not working. None of the features you told me are working. What do you mean it's not working? It's a brand new car. How's it not working? I don't know. It stopped working. All right, so they tow the truck back to the... They say they, so they tow the, the car, your brand new car, back. So they, they bring back the dealer. They go, okay, let's check it out. They say, oh, come on. Your car's working just fine. You just got no gas in the tank. <laughs> oh, gas? You need to put in gas. You need to put in gas, of course. You got no gas. Nothing's going to work. You have, a, you have a very healthy car. No gas. Not doing nothing. The author says, you know, you can have all these techniques. 25 chapters of Tanya. If you're not happy, you're out of luck. You're going to be on the side of the road for the night. <laughs> the gas of life is joy. And dear friends, with that, let us begin learning. The big butt of Tanya. So on the opening page, you, I sent you all earlier today the handout, right? So here we go. Chapter 26. The title, at least as of now, that I gave the chapter is that joy is essential. Part 1, the happiness advantage. Now, by the way, at least for now, let's say joy and happy are interchangeable terms. right? Is there a difference, difference between joy and happiness? I don't know, maybe in the English language some, uh, <laughs> some professor of language will tell us that there is a big difference. We're soon going to get a definition of joy from the Tanya. So let's wait for the Tanya to describe to us, to define for us, what does it mean to be happy? What's real happiness? The, the essential definition of happiness will be coming to us in a moment. Says the Alter Rebbe. However, <laughs> that's how the chapter begins. Meaning, this is the big caveat Big however. The whole past 25 chapters, there's a big however on it. What's the however? That with, notwithstanding, the strategies discussed above, the following fundamental principle in life must be discussed. We got to share 
this big fundamental principle about life. What's the principle? Says the Alter Rebbe, we can compare the struggle with your Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, to winning any sort of physical competition. Think just about life, any competition you go to. The Alter Rebbe, interestingly, is going to give an example from the martial arts, from a boxing match, <laughs> a wrestling match. Says the Alter Rebbe, think of two men who are wrestling with one another each attempting to knock the other down. If one of them were lazy and sluggish, he would be easily beaten and pulled down, even if he were stronger than his opponent. Ooh, this is a very true fact. There's two parts of being a good fighter. Any sport. First of all, you got to have good, good skill. You, gotta, you have to have good strength. But number two, you got to be in a good emotional space. And that is why every single sports player and every single sports team has a coach. And what does a coach do? A coach beyond just teaching you technique, he fires up his team. A good coach inspires his team. Right? Like the saying goes, it's not about the size of the man in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the man. What happens? Let's think about it for a second. If you have a boxer, and uh, that's his day job. He goes boxing. <laughs> he goes to the ring, and he tries competing and winning. He wants to win the game. And imagine he wakes up, he has a big game today, and all of a sudden he goes to his closet, and his favorite boxing shorts are not clean. They're not there. His wife forgot to send the shorts to the dry cleaners. He's in a bad mood. Again? You forgot today's my important day. Now I don't have my favorite boxing shorts. He's in a bad mood. He leaves the house. He's in a horrible mood. He's stuck in traffic. And the day's already going bad. He's a train wreck by the time he comes there and he's playing. He's strong. He's a stronger opponent. But he's just not in a good space. Is he going to win the game? Maybe, yeah, maybe no. But chances are, if you're uninspired, if you're lazy, if you're sluggish, if you're heavy, you're not going to give it your all. You're lacking the energy. So the Alter says, even if you're actually stronger, physical strength, brute strength is not everything. Emotional strength is extremely important. The Alter says, let's continue. It's exactly the same when you are struggling to beat the Yetzer, you simply cannot defeat it with laziness and sluggishness, which are symptoms of depression and a stony, desensitized heart. We got to talk about this. Laziness and sluggishness. The altar says, you're not going to be successful in life. You cannot be successful as a Jew. You're not going to be winning battles of life against weaknesses, against unhealthy choices if you are lazy. What does lazy mean? Lazy means you're simply uninspired. You're sluggish. You're heavy. You don't have good movement. Where does that come from? You know, some people say I'm lazy. No one's really lazy. <laughs> Laziness is a symptom. Where does laziness come from? Laziness simply means you're uninspired. Even the laziest person knows how to move fast, right? If they're excited. <laughs> what are days when we're lazy, when we just don't have the fight in us? We're just not ready to face the music of life. What are those days like? What makes us lazy and sluggish? We're probably not in a good mood. We're depressed. Now, one second. Depression is not being used here in the clinical sense. We're not talking about clinical depression, which you need to go to a medical practitioner for, a mental health professional for. We're talking about the more common, regular human condition of having a bad day. Something went wrong. We're stressed about something. 
maybe we feel very guilty or ashamed of something. We're just in a bad space for whatever reason. There's so many reasons. Something went wrong. We're in a bad emotional space, and we are just simply in a depressed mood. All right? So this is not clinical depression. We've got to go see a doctor. It's just part of regular human moods. I'm in a bad mood today. Why in a bad mood? It can be the stupidest thing. You ripped your favorite shirt. Oh, I'm in a bad mood now. It just it triggered you. Things trigger you in a bad mood. I got into a little car accident. Boom. Oh, was, my whole week is gone. What does that do to you? When we get sad and depressed and down, the altar of it says here very interesting words. We have a stony, desensitized heart. What does that mean? When we become sad, we are not feeling an emotion. It's the opposite. Our heart basically shuts down. We enter into a certain type of paralysis. When you are sad, life stops flowing through you. Which is why sad people, all of a sudden everything becomes hard. Wake up in the morning, I'm tired. You know, put on some clothes and leave the house. Ugh, I'm not in the mood. You want to go to the gym today? No, not today. Uh, would you like to eat some good food? Nah, not in the mood. <laughs> life shuts down for sad people. The problem with sadness is not that it's a negative emotion. The problem with sadness is that it shuts you down. You always see this with people who are having a bad day. they got no energy inside of them. Hey, you want to go out today? Let's do a fun dinner tonight. No, I'm not in the mood. A, a depressed person never answers the phone with joy. Hey, good morning. How's it going? What do they say? Hello. <laughs> right? They're mopey. There's no tone in their voice. There's no excitement in their voice. There's, 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 there's a drip of energy. There's no energy left in them. The promise sadness is it shuts you down. Life stops for you. It's like, it's like a clogged pipe. Your heart, a heart is meant to be soft. A heart is meant to be open. A heart is meant to be expressive. Life flows through our heart, both biologically and, and also on the deeper level, emotionally. When we're in a bad space, you know what the problem is? The problem is we got no life. You're, you're in a horrible space. If you've got no life, you're so vulnerable. You're so weak. You've got nothing to work with. You're out of gas. You can't rev up your engine. You can't go full throttle. And when you got no life, you get lazy, and you become very weak and vulnerable. You know, think about the day, if you've ever experienced this, that you broke your diet. All right, you're on a diet, and you broke your diet. What was that day like? Was it, what is it, was it a day that you were in a good space, you were productive, you are happy, but yeah, whatever, you just went inside to break your diet and eat some ice cream? Or was it the day that you were already in a bad space, you're having a bad day, and you're depressed, and ooh, all of a sudden, you broke your diet. The diet's gone. I think we all know the answer, right? <laughs> when we're in a bad space, bad choices are made. We're not mentally strong. We're not emotionally strong. And we're not there. Life is not there. Which is why we even say this. Let's keep on reading. Says the author of, let's continue reading. The only way to win is with the enthusiasm that comes out of joy and a wide open heart. Free from any trace of worry or anxiety in the world. You know, what, you know what true joy is? What does it mean to be happy? Some people, they, they get happy for a half hour when they go eat good food. <clears throat> what happens after you eat good food? If you were miserable before you had the good food, you're going to be miserable also after. So that's not called real joy, right? What's real joy? Real joy, says the author, is when you have a wide open heart. What does wide open heart mean? Joy, the author says, is not so much a specific emotion. Joy is simply life being allowed to pulse through you. Joy is life on full throttle. Whatever life you got inside of you, it flows through you strongly when you are happy. Which is why when you're happy, you speak full voice, booming voice. How you doing? Let's get going today. When you're happy, you're creative, you work well, you're focused, you're, 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 you have good friendships, you can invest 
you're, 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 you're interested in people. Everything works well when you're happy. When you're happy, you can make good choices. When you're happy, you can be strong. When you're happy, you could face the fight. You could smell the coffee. Wake up to another day. Pound the pavement. You're healthy. You're human. <laughs> Joy is not a luxury. Joy is not an add-on. You know, like it's an interesting question. And we actually spoke a little bit about this. For those of you who are by the happiness course, we did this past summer. What is the natural state of the human being? Is the natural state, the natural psyche of the human being, is it natural to be happy? Is it natural to be sad? Or is it natural to be, just be neutral? Nothing. You're neutral. If something makes you happy, you'll be happy. If something's sad, you'll be sad. But neutral. What would you say? I think a lot of people think neutral. You know, neutral. Life is neutral. If something pushes you over the top, you'll be happy. If something pushes you down, you'll be down. The Rebbe actually spoke about this. The Rebbe said, no, if you look at children, you see the natural state of life is to be happy. Babies are happy unless something gets them down. They're hungry, they, they're tired, they need a new diaper. Okay, so then they start crying. Second you take care of the problem, babies don't become neutral. They're happy. Studies are done. Babies laugh hundreds of times a day. Adults, you're happy if they laugh tens of times a day. How many times does a chuckle leave your mouth? How many times do you smile a day? The natural state of living is to be very happy. Because happiness is not an emotion. Happiness is life. Happiness is an open heart. So life is full throttle. If you're not happy, it's like you're on a, you're, 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 you're no gas in your tank. You have nothing to work with. So you break down the side of the road. <laughs> You've got a, you have such a good car. You're healthy. You have, you're strong. But all that strength, you've got no gas to work with. So happiness becomes the fuel of life. So the altar says, the big caveat, the big catch. You want to know what the big catch of Tanya is? Tanya is here to teach you how to be a successful person, successful Jew, how to be a strong Jew. Gives you all the techniques, all the tools, all the strategies. But if you're not happy, you're a broken down car. Nothing's going to work. You're happy? Then you're in good shape. So the altar is going to teach us and tell us that we need to be happy. It's not optional. It's not a luxury, it's a necessity. A Jew must be happy. Because an unhappy Jew is a failure. It's impossible. You're not going to be successful. You're not going to be successful in life. You're not going to be successful as a Jew. Every moment of life, you have to be happy. Every day must be a joyful day. If not, that's a big problem. Don't settle for anything less than a joyful life. So the author is going to teach us how to do that. <laughs> The author is going to teach us how to do that. But the opening thesis, the opening theory of chapter 26 of Tanya is that you need to be happy because happiness is life and sadness and depression and melancholy is toxic. It's bad. It paralyzes you. It shuts you down. You cannot be sad. It's not okay. That, that's, a big, that's a big deal. That's a big statement. Now, one second. Never be sad? Never be sad? Is sadness never appropriate? You know, it's interesting. The Alter Rebbe, when he came onto the scene with the, you know, author of the Tanya, came to the world with the Tanya, it was quite revolutionary. Tanya is very revolutionary. I'm saying even, even within the Orthodox world, the Tanya well, it was, it was a whole new light. But it, it took people getting used to. The Tanya was so revolutionary that it made some of the ideas in Tanya made people uncomfortable. And the Altar suffered in his life from a lot of opposition. We're talking about over 200 years ago. One of the biggest complaints against the Altar Rebbe was that he and his group promote too much joy. Too much happiness. <laughs> Sounds like a weird thing to complain about. But they were saying, this isn't Jewish. We've never seen this before. You're singing in a synagogue? What, are you crazy? <laughs> You're supposed to be serious in a synagogue. Cry. Crying is a good thing. You're happy in a synagogue? What are you happy about? <laughs> you're, supposed to be, uh, you're supposed to have anxiety about your sins. What do you think? <laughs> There's a lot of like heaviness and weightiness. And... Uh, 
you know, we don't even fully relate to the, the culture of Judaism. You know, back in Eastern Europe, those times, uh, a, a lot of the spirit of the Jewish people was, was really lost, and Hasidus brought it back. And this was really one of the top complaints. The Hasidim are too happy. They celebrate, they sing together, they have such joy. It's not Jewish. And the argument was, if people are too happy, they become too lighthearted. They become too frivol, frivolousness. There's too much frivolousness, and it becomes easy to sin when there's a little bit too much, light, uh, too much lightheartedness. You know, uh, the old... Old school thinking was, a Jew who is heavy and serious will sin less. A Jew who is too jolly? Eh, no, no, no. He's going to sin too much. The ultimate saying knows exactly the opposite. A Jew has to be happy. Got to be happy. Without happiness, you're a failure. You're going to fail. It's inevitable. So this is quite revolutionary. A Jew must be happy, and happiness is not a luxury. It's not like try to do it once a week. It's like, you know, you can never be not happy. If you're not happy, you're in deep, deep, deep trouble. So sadness never good? Is there never appropriate sadness? So let's read. Let's continue reading. We're on page 196, the next page. And the author is going to discuss this idea, like, you know, once, you know, when is sadness appropriate? Is it ever a good thing? Because as of now, the author is saying it's a bad thing. It shuts you down. Sadness is never good, never productive. It never helps you in life. It says the author like this. Top of page 196. Right? Is sadness ever appropriate? It says the author Rebbe. Is there no advantage to sadness? And look, we even got a verse. There's a verse in the Torah, it's in Proverbs, which seems to not go well with the author of his whole running idea, idea here. It is written, quote, in every sadness there will be some gain. Oh, look at this. King Solomon in Proverbs says, in every sadness there will be some gain, which implies that sadness does possess some sort of virtue and redeeming quality. Oh, so how does the Alter Rebbe deal with this verse in the Torah? In every sadness there will be some gain. Says the Alter Rebbe, read the verse carefully. You'll see that the verse actually supports exactly what we're saying here in this chapter. How? Let's continue reading. Says the Alter Rebbe, but this poses no challenge at all to our fundamental principle that sadness is always counterproductive. Why? From the contrary, the phrasing of these words imply that sadness itself has no positive qualities, only that some sort of gain will emerge later out of it. Look at the words of the verse. The verse doesn't say in every sadness there is some gain. The verse says in every sadness there will be some gain later, not now, in the future tense. The author says, look at that. The verse itself is telling you, sadness is never good. Oh, sometimes in the future there will be some benefit from it. But now it's not good. It itself is never good. And the author is going to show us right now, which is going to be a topic which we're going to explore in properly, in more depth later on. But the author is at least going to tell us right now quickly that there is an idea. Sometimes sadness is necessary. But even when it's necessary, it's no good. Like, think about a drug. Think about a drug. A medicine, a very strong medicine. There's a reason why strong medicines um, are not sold over the counter, right? Why? Because they're not healthy. They're not good for you. It's toxic. It could cause a lot of damage. On the other hand, if it's not good, why do we give it to people? It's prescribed to people with care in specific situations, with a schedule, when to take it, how often to take it, how much to take it. Because you're dealing with a certain problem, we need to administer a certain form of treatment. The treatment isn't good. Nobody wants to take toxic drugs. Oh, but we take it to do a certain effect, and then we stop taking it, and then it gets us back on the track to be healthy. See, the author says, okay, listen, sometimes in a certain way, certain situations, sadness is necessary to accomplish certain things within you. And we'll talk about that in a moment. 
But the sadness itself is never good. Drugs aren't good, right? <laughs> Toxic stuff are not good. It can lead to good. It can lead to good. Which means it gets you on the track of joy. It gets you on the track of health. But this verse itself tells you, sadness, there will be some gain later on. But the sadness itself is never good. Even though sometimes it is warranted and it's a healthy thing to go through it, even though it's toxic. You know, again, another example, nobody wants to go under the, nobody wants to go to the operating room. Nobody wants to go under the surgeon's knife, right? God should bless us all to never have to go under the surgeon's knife. Going under the surgeon's knife and opening up the body and cutting around the body is never a good thing. Right, Joel? Not a good thing. On the other hand, if you go to a doctor and the doctor says, you know what, we got to do it. Then you got to do it. Why do you have to do it? Not because it is good but because this will lead you to getting back on track to health. So the author is saying sadness is always a, a very, very dangerous thing. It's always toxic. It's not healthy for human beings to be sad. Sometimes certain specific situations, and it has to be prescribed properly, the sadness could be an experience that will lead you to good, lead you back on health, and what is health? Happiness. So sadness is only good if it will lead to some gain, lead you back to happiness. So let's read that over here. We'll at least read it. It's, it's very brief here. We'll explore it later on as we learn more Tanya, but the other is going to give us the gist of the idea. Let's continue. Says the author, but what is the gain? What's the gain that follows a sadness? It is a genuine joy in Hashem, your God. It's the joy of a Jew feeling close to God. This joy comes after a genuine sadness over your sins at designated times with a bitter soul and a broken heart. I'll continue reading, then we'll explain. Through this, through this sadness and through this having a broken heart, the spirit of impurity, the sitra achra, sitra achra is the fancy Hebrew term for unholiness, and the iron curtain separating between you and your Father in Heaven are shattered, so that afterwards you can experience joy. Sometimes a person, a Jew, could become so so separate from God, and so separate from his own godly soul, and so separate from his own spiritual sensitivity, that he's just checked out. He's, he's checked out of the warmth of Jewish living. He's checked out of a connection to God. And there's like this iron curtain. He's a desensitized Jew. He's just not plugged in. Why does that happen? Because there's a thick layer of impurity that just clogs up the spiritual system of a Jew. How do you break that? How do you break that inertia? How do you, how do you break that uh, the total uh, um, lack of sensitivity and warmth towards God? You know, sometimes they have to have a broken heart. You see this in life. People, after they go through a crisis, it breaks them and they become new people. What did it do? A crisis or having a broken heart shatters a layer, a superficial layer of who you are. And all of a sudden, you start thinking again in a certain fresh new way. You do a little bit of introspection, do a little bit of, of soul searching, and you make new, new commitments. And many people say this, that a turning point in their life was a moment of crisis or a moment of disturbance. Sometimes disturbances are very, very important. It shakes you out of your status quo and it allows you to become uh, a more healthy person. Moments of crisis very often make people into better parents, better spouses, and better Jews. And the author is, is describing to us why that happens because we have this thick layer of impurity and the more that we make bad choices, those bad choices linger, they stick with us. And they form this layer, which eventually becomes an iron curtain, an iron curtain that separates us and our Father in Heaven, us and our soul. So sometimes you need a sadness to break your heart, to have a bitter soul, and that shatters that wall and allows you to get back in touch again with your own inner core of holiness, with your connection with God. But it has to be genuine sadness 
And the Altabah tells us here something critical. Look at these words. At designated times. Which means not all sadness is genuine. Not all sadness is valid. Not all sadness is appropriate. So much of sadness is inappropriate sadness. We should not be experiencing that. And the fact that we are experiencing that is inappropriate. And when something is inappropriate, you're supposed to reject it. There's inappropriate thoughts, there's inappropriate actions, and there's inappropriate emotions. Sometimes sadness is inappropriate. And one of the keys to know if it's, a, if it's appropriate or not is was it experienced, it, was it experienced at, a, at a designated time? Proper sadness has to be something, an experience that we consciously enter. If we didn't consciously make the choice, the decision to enter this space, and instead we just all of a sudden start having a bad day, that's always bad. That's always inappropriate. So the author is already telling us the first clue. Good sadness, which is not good, but at least it's productive, it's genuine, it's appropriate, it's valid, is when it's at a designated time. If it's not at a designated time, it's toxic, and it will not lead to good. It will only lead to good if it's at a designated time. And we see this in the, in the news over the past few years. We've really had this. Certain drugs that have been life-saving, when prescribed at designated times, have become a drug that are killing people. Why? Because they're taking it at the wrong times. Toxic stuff, you've got to be really careful with toxic stuff. Sadness is toxic. If it's at a designated time for the right purpose and done properly, it's administered properly, oh, okay, there could be some gain from this. There will be gain. If it's not done properly for the proper reasons and not at a designated time, it's no good. Could I ask a question? Of course. Go ahead, Lewis. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just to be clear at, at at first, I thought designated time meant like uh, Yom Kippur, or or like according to a religious schedule or mm -hmm. something. But now I'm realizing, I think that it means, you know, the sadness is red is is. You know, from a specific uh, action or interaction, like like a a valid uh, cause or circumstance constitutes a designated time. Is that mm -hmm. is that? Please comment. Yeah. Okay. So you're 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 touching upon a very important point. That yes. When you look here, you will notice that the altar says at a designated time, but doesn't tell us what that designated time is. <laughs> so what are we supposed to make of that? And the truth is, we're not there yet. This, this whole subject of what is genuine sadness, when we should do genuine sadness, and then what is the appropriate time, that will come up later. So we will, we will, we will go through the system step by step uh, more properly in two classes from now. But here we at least have the general concept Toxic stuff needed to be prescribed for a specific use at specific times, at specific intervals, and then it could lead to some gain. Then it will okay, lead to health. Thank you. Otherwise, otherwise, you're not going to be in a good space from it. So the ultimate, but the goal is to be happy. The goal is that even when you have sadness, it should lead you on the road to happiness. The author continues. The Zohar says that this breaking of the spirit of impurity is what the psalm is speaking of when it says, quote, a broken spirit, a broken heart, that God you will not despise. And once that is accomplished, says the Zohar, then the prior verses are fulfilled. Quote, let me hear gladness and joy, return to me the joy of your rescue, and rest a giving spirit upon me. So there's a verse in Psalms, it's, it's chapter 51. And the whole theme of the chapter is the pain and the bitterness after, after a, a phase of transgression, after sinning. And this, the psalm speaks about this, a broken spirit, a broken heart. Sometimes God wants a broken heart. And the broken heart 
breaks the spirit of impurity. But the same verse that speaks about the sadness and the guilt and, and the remorse of after sin, what does it say also? The way the psalm frames it is, let me hear gladness and joy. Return to me the joy of your rescue. We're not here just to sit and mope about our sins. The goal is to reach joy. So the author is saying, look at the storyline. We're not doing sadness for the sake of sadness. It's sadness for the sake of joy. And this again, this emphasizes again the point here. Sadness itself is never good. There's never a goal for a Jew to be sad. The goal is to always be happy. Sometimes we need to go through sadness, but even that sadness is to lead to joy. To go back to the analogy, to go under an operating table. No one goes under an operating table for the purpose of opening up their body. No. <laughs> we go under the operating table. It's like that afterwards we could close you up and you could be healthy again. So sadness, okay, sometimes you got to do it. But it's always there to lead you back on the road to joy, which is what the psalm says, let me hear gladness and joy. And the author is going to introduce us to a very interesting Jewish tradition, which is very not well known, and it's because it's not really practiced. It comes from the Kabbalah. It's a Kabbalistic tradition, which was performed by great uh, holy men. And the author is going to share a little bit with us that touches upon our subject. Let me give you a little bit of an introduction. Here's the introduction. In general, in the olden days, before Thomas Edison invented the light bulbs, people's days used to end as soon as it gets dark, because there's no light. There's no street lamps, <laughs> and there's no light at home. So essentially, people, people just went to sleep as soon as it got dark. That was, generally speaking, how society used to function. It was very expensive to... Candles were very expensive especially whenever there was wartime. Wartime meant it was very expensive to buy candles, to buy fuel. So people didn't really do stuff by the light of a candle. It was daylight, and then you go to sleep, and you wake up at the crack of dawn, and that was was life. Great Torah scholars would study through the night. And they would, you know, invest money, which was a very big sacrifice, Right, today we don't need to make such sacrifices to study Torah. But they made the sacrifice of, of buying expensive candles. And they would have a little candle by their desk, and they would sit and study to the light of a little candle. Great righteous people would study through the nights. And there was a certain prayer, it's called the Midnight Prayer, which nobody, you know, it was written and designed for very holy righteous Jews to do. This midnight prayer, which basically today nobody does, it was instituted by the Arizal, the great teacher of Kabbalah from the city of Tzafat some 500 years ago. And it was designed to say this prayer before you begin your midnight learning. So this was a thing. Every single day before you begin your midnight learning, you do this midnight prayer. And the midnight prayer has a very, very uh, a sad and bitter tone to it. It's a time to mourn and to feel the pain of the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the holy temples, and to literally feel the pain of God's divine presence that, was, uh, that left the Jewish people and left Jerusalem once the temple was destroyed. And on a deeper level, we also have our own Jerusalem, our own soul. And we mourn and we cry over the destruction of our own temple, our own Jerusalem, the fact that we have done certain actions that have compromised the relationship with God. So this is a special prayer which has a very, very bitter tone to it. We're mourning the loss of Jerusalem and we're the compromise, the destruction of Jerusalem, and we're also mourning the destruction and the compromise of our own inner Jerusalem. It's very sad. It's very introspective, this prayer. And um, it's not a joyful prayer. But at the end of the prayer, this psalm is said, Psalm 51. And the author says, oh, now we can understand why this psalm was put there at the end of this very uh, uh, a sad, melancholic midnight prayer. Let's read. Bottom of page 196. Says the author, but this is the simple reason for which the Arizal established 
that we should say this particular psalm after the Tikkun Chatzos, which is the midnight prayer, before learning Torah, so that we would learn with the genuine joy in God that follows the sadness. Oh, studying Torah should never be done in a sad place, even if it's like a holy sadness. No, 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 no. Studying Torah, you always have to be in a good mood, in a joyful mood. You can't study Torah. Torah doesn't settle in the mind and heart if you're not happy. So it's a big Jewish value. You've got to be happy. You've got to be well settled. You've got to have an open heart to study Torah. So the Arizal, there's this little prayer, and the prayer is definitely a sad prayer. But then, boom, he right away gives you the psalm that tells you transition to joy. The goal is joy. So sadness, but then right away, now we're going to sit and study Torah for the rest of the night? That has to be joy. That was again showing you the storyline. Sometimes there's a place, sometimes it's appropriate to go through a limited, defined experience of sadness, of negativity, of melancholy, whatever it is. But the goal is to immediately transition to joyful life. And the author of it says, concludes this idea, we're on top of page 197. This joy that comes after a period of sadness... has an advantage, which is what the verse said. From every sadness there will be some gain. There's an advantage to this joy. Like the advantage of the kind of light which emerges from darkness. As the Zohar explains the verse, I saw there was an advantage to wisdom over foolishness, like the advantage of light. A careful reading of that passage in the Zohar should suffice for those that understand. (laughs) So if you want to go look up the Zohar, in the footnote you have the citation. But the idea is, there's a certain quality to joy that comes after sadness. There's a certain quality to joy that comes after a challenge to that joy. Just like everything in life. You appreciate a cup of water, not when you have access to water 24-7, but uh, if you're stuck in a desert and all of a sudden then you get access to a cup of water, oh, this cup of water is special. You really feel it. There's a quality to the experience. So there's a special joy that specifically comes after a challenge and you go through sadness and you suffer from a broken heart. And then you have joy. Oh, there's a special joy there. But this is going to be a topic we're going to be discussed later. What is legitimate sadness? When should, we, when should it be administered? When should it be designated, right? When should we schedule it for? When should we tell our secretary to schedule the sadness for? <laughs> and uh, how to make sure that it's being done productively and in a healthy way that it will lead to joy. But the author, again, is here simply trying to emphasize the core idea here. That joy is a necessity and sadness is never, ever good. It's toxic, it's counterproductive, and it's not healthy for a Jew. A healthy Jew is a happy Jew. And a happy Jew is a strong Jew. And there has to be alacrity, an enthusiasm, a joy to our life. And being Jewish just simply has to be a joy. And that is essential to being a Jew, essential to serving God. And the author concludes with this final little passage. Says the Alter Rebbe, really? The fundamental importance of eliminating sadness is an explicit verse in the Torah. Quote, because you did not serve God, your God, with joy. And the Arizal's commentary on this verse is well known. Let me explain to you. This verse is actually from a, a difficult part of the Torah. A few times in the Torah, Moses shares with the Jewish people what's called rebuke. Rebuke means Moses says, listen, if you listen to God and you follow the mitzvot, God's going to give you a good life. And if you turn away from God, there's going to be trouble. And this is from one of those passages where Moses is warning the Jews, you know, you're about, you've, you've wandered in the desert for 40 years, you're about to enter the land of Israel, don't forget about God. He says, don't grow fat, and don't grow wealthy, and then you just start forgetting about God. And he lists some bad things that could happen if the Jews leave God. And Moses concludes his rebuke by saying, because you did not serve God, your God, with joy. The simple meaning is that you're going to have these negative consequences because when you were living a good, comfortable, affluent life with joy, you didn't serve God. Then Rizal says, no, read it even more literally. You know why you're going to have these negative consequences? Because you're not serving God with joy. You're serving God, 
but not with joy. So there could be a Jew who's 100% religious, walks the walk, talks the talk, wears the clothing, goes to shul three times a day, does every mitzvah and more, but he's not a happy Jew. That Rizal says, that is a deal breaker. That's no good. A Jew has to be happy. It's not enough that you just do mitzvahs. you got to be happy. If you're happy, that's Jewish. You're in the right space. And dear friends, with this, we conclude today's piece of time. The introduction to joy and the message is we cannot settle on anything less than living joyful lives. And the Altar is not going to leave us in the dark. The Altar is going to teach us techniques. Saying we have many chapters ahead of us, and we didn't even finish this chapter. It's just the beginning of chapter 26. And the Altar is going to take us through every area where we experience anxiety, sadness, depression, melancholy, all different forms of negative emotions, shame and guilt, and stress. And the Altar is going to teach us how to change our perspective and to give us the tools that we should be able to get ourselves in the right frame of mind to never lose the joy of life, the joy of living. To never stop being full of life. It's interesting, in the English language, they say that, right? Whenever you see somebody happy, what do you say about them? Oh, they're so full of life. Interesting. Even the English language has it, huh? You don't say, look, they're so happy. You say, they're so full of life. Joy is life. And to live a Jewish life means we need to be living a happy life. Because we're a Jew. <laughs> so to live life as a Jew, you've got to be happy. If you're not happy, you got no life. So we're going to get techniques. But here's the introduction to the topic. we got to be joyous. we got to be joyful, and we need to cultivate the joy of living and living life as a Jew and real joy. Real joy is not temporary joy. Uh, real joy, you know, you give a kid a lollipop. Okay, they become happy for five minutes. They didn't make the kid happy. Yeah, it's like a Band-Aid. Real joy is when we could open up our hearts. And that has to be deep. That's real. When we open up our hearts and there's a real joy, there's an openness, there's a softness. We have a reactive heart. We feel it. We just have unbelievable energy. We have unbelievable strength. We have enthusiasm. We have alacrity. And that's the goal. And I just want to conclude with one little story. I'm sure you've heard the story from me. I've repeated this very often, but I think it's such an important story. There was once a, a Jewish couple, a traditional family, they came to the rabbi very, very shaken in a lot of distress. And they told the rabbi that, what did we do wrong? Why do we deserve this? Why is God doing this to us? We raised a family, we're a traditional Jewish home, and our kids don't want to have anything to do with Judaism. They reject everything. They're not interested. They're, they want to drop it all. And we tried raising our children to be good Jews, to, you know, to be traditional, go to Hebrew school, to go to shul, go to synagogue, you know, nothing. But they're, they're, they just reject it all. And they were very, very distressed. And the father muttered out of, out of his mouth, like letting out a sigh, he just muttered a famous Yiddish saying, Oi, es is shver tzayinayit. You ever heard that one? All right, Joel, your parents used to say that? Or you've heard it around? Any Jew who came from uh, from Europe used to say this. Which means? It's hard. It's hard to be a Jew. Or shver actually means heavy. <laughs> it's heavy to be a Jew. Ooh, it's hard to be a Jew. He just muttered it. Oh, shver And the Rebbe said, what was that? <laughs> what did you just say? And the Rebbe said, do you say that often? He said, yeah, you know, it's just a saying. It's like an idiom, you know. The Rebbe said, do your children hear you saying that? He was like, yeah, whatever, you know, I say it. <laughs> the Rebbe said, well, no wonder. Why would, you, why, why would your kids <laughs> want to keep on holding to something which is hard and difficult and stressful and heavy, a heavy weight? The Rebbe said, you have to be saying this is good to Zainayit. It is good to be a Jew. It's a joy to be a Jew. Life has to be joyful. What type of impression do you give your kids if every single time there's an opportunity to do something Jewish, it's all heavy, let out steam, you're not in the mood, it's heavy, it's serious. Judaism is a joy, it's good. And we have to be living that. It's unhealthy if not. 
know, this is already a little bit of a rant, <laughs> but I think it's a very big problem that the one day that every single Jew goes to synagogue is Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. You know, the two serious days of the year. There's not that many serious days on the Jewish calendar. That's the day you got to introduce somebody to Judaism. <laughs> if everybody's going to synagogue only one day a year, let it be Simchas Torah. That's a better representative of, of the Jewish experience. There's a joy. We're happy. We're enthusiastic about this. There's a joy to life. Okay, some days are serious, like Lewis said, right? Okay, Yom Kippur comes around once a year. We've got to be a little bit more serious. But that is not the tone. That's not the culture. That's not the underlying vibe of Judaism. And the author says that is the space we want to get ourselves into. That's a, that's a, that's a healthy Jew. And this is an absolute necessity. This is critical. This is not optional. It's not a luxury. This is the goal. We've got to be happy. And dear friends, with that, we're on our way. We began the journey of joy, and we'll keep on taking it further from here. Next week, we'll begin the practical advice, practical guidance of how we could start implementing this. So I want to thank you all for joining. Have a wonderful evening. God bless you all. And we'll see you all soon. Rabbi, how does some of the medicine, like the mood elevators, like Prozac and Zoloft, how do, how do those come into play? Because you're medicating yourself to feel a certain way. I'm just curious about that. If a doctor feels that that's necessary, then it's necessary. Got it. Um, which means some people suffer from clinical depression, meaning that even when nothing is wrong, they just, uh, you know, it could be hormones, it could be chemical imbalances uh, that's making them, you know, unhealthy. So if you're unhealthy, you know, then you go, then you go to a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, well, med medically, uh, there are people who have... Uh, hereditary depressions and, exactly. and chronic anxiety that they wouldn't be able to function and uh, they need these things uh, I'm glad there's a way that something can help them right but at the same time Hillary we have to make a clear differentiation between real joy and uh, manufactured artificial joy mm -hmm. real joy is when you are happy if something is just shutting you down and making you, meaning Prozac sometimes make you, makes you even less sensitive. It makes you less yourself. And okay, mm -hmm. so you, you, you become a little bit uh, loopy. You know, be, so for, if a doctor says you need it, you need it. But it's also, you know, real joy is something which we develop internally, which we earn, which is something which, uh, which, which, which flows from our own life and our own proper attitudes in life. Well, but your, if a doctor says you need it because, but but it's not it's not the way to go, you know. When when the doctor right. says be happy, it doesn't mean go take marijuana and what, go to what, cloud yeah, nine. But what you're yeah. hoping what what you're hoping for is that the medicines will allow you to come out and exactly. your true personality come out and function like a human being, which you weren't able to do before. That's the real uh, way to use these medicines, and most uh, of psychiatrists say they should go along with with uh with with cognitive you know talking to somebody at the same time because that makes it even better exactly not exactly. just alone not just alone dr lee i yeah no i i am very aware that there are people who are clinically depressed or have major you know issues but and i'm not sure what type of doctor you are but um i do see and i don't want to use the word epidemic but it's like Everyone I know is on one of those drugs. <laughs> like, <laughs> we all can't be that clinically depressed. I mean, I've worked places, every one of the women at this, and it was a huge company, they were all, I, I've never taken any of it. I mean, if I needed it, I would, but I've never. But they were all on one of them. Uh, I think pros, I can't even think of the ones, but um, everybody was on something. So I guess... That's the part that really blows my mind because I think if if we want to be happy or really feel like authentically feel joy is what the rabbi saying. I so wonder why so many people are on those. Hillary, Hillary, most people should be on them for a short period of time, and sometimes it, the doctor is prescribing them for too long, mm -hmm. and, the, and a person just gets used to them and doesn't want to go off. And it's a failure on both sides. Mm -hmm. So they, they really should not, unless you have a, a severe like schizophrenia or a severe chronic depression, suicidal or stuff like that, you shouldn't be on it for a long period of time. You should be able to 
to use it and talk to your psychiatrist or whoever you talk to, and then wean off of it and 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 get out and get away from it. That's right. the that idea. That's the yeah. idea. That makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. It's, yeah, 100%. That it's the, the goal, real joy is something which we earn. Uh, just like just, it's like part of maturing, you know, which is which is an interesting thing. It is. It's not saying they're immature to say that in, as an adult we have to keep on maturing. It is in fact we don't stop maturing till the final day of our life, and the author is very into that. You know, we have to keep on growing our our uh, worldview and the way we see things, and that's very real. It, it takes. You know, we're we're always trying to deepen our our spiritual senses, our understanding, our perspectives on life. The worst tragedy is seeing, you know, like older, oh. o- older adults who are literally still like teenagers. Their minds still process reality like teenagers. And they get petty and they, you know, they have bad moods and they get moody. It's like, and it's, it's, it's like a tragedy. The author really wants us to earn our way to being happy. And it's not by, uh, you know, artificially making it happen uh, temporarily. <laughs> It's something that takes a lot, a lot of work. It takes, it takes a lot of hard work to be happy. <laughs> and, and especially when there's moments of challenges, we have to really uh, find the inner grit to change the way we look at reality and to give ourselves good pep talks and to inspire ourselves to think differently and to still feel happy. And that's what Dr. going to tell us over here. It's a lot of hard work to be happy. we gotta, we got to change. There are certain attitudes that we need to implement into our lives, change the way we think, change the way we feel. Um, and that's, that's the real work. So... If somebody needs it and a doctor says they need it, yeah, but not in any way um, uh, in the position to comment on this, Hillary, but I do have a hunch that you are correct, that it's being used a little bit too widely, and people have to be willing to work hard to be happy and to be in a good space instead of just getting prescribed with, with drugs that just whatever do whatever to you. It's hard work, yes. It's hard work to be happy. It's serious business. Being happy is no laughing matter. It's fair to be a yid. <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's a process there's something called work we're in, it, we're in it we're in it to work we're in it for the long haul and part of the long haul is to get ourselves happy to right. get ourselves in a good space i think the saying i've heard a lot uh is um it's not easy and it's not cheap being jewish oh, it's a joy it's good but no one said it's easy no one said um, it's have cheap. you